Lord, we come to you, God. We sang to you, Lord. We remember you this morning in your church. And we just remind ourselves, Lord, in your presence that we come to you, Lord. Our desire today is to worship you. God, and with sincerity, Lord, stripping away all pretensions, all external things, Lord, we love you, God. We tell you, Lord, our Father in heaven, that we love you. As a response to you loving us and dying on the cross for our sins, Lord Jesus, we love you. There is none like you in this world. There's none like you in all the universe, Lord. You, you have loved us and we love you back, Lord. We are your people. Bought with your blood, called by your name, Lord. And our desire today is to honor you. Lord, help us to honor you as a people holy to you, Lord. Filled with your praise. And so, God, we pray that you would be honored in this church. Week in and week out, that you would be exalted. That you would be given the place of supremacy in our meetings, in our midst, God. And we ask for it now, Lord, in our minds, in our affections. Holy Spirit, that you would exalt Christ in our midst today. Lord, don't let us meet in vain. Save us and deliver us today from going through the motions, Lord. Draw near, near to us today, Lord, and come be the living God that you proclaim yourself to be in Scripture. Whom we have experienced many times over. Come draw near to us today. As your word is proclaimed, Lord, personally address us in this room today, Lord. God, I pray for every soul in this room that you would pierce their hearts and pierce our minds with your truth and call us into worship this morning. As we linger over and as we consider your glorious gospel, lift our affections, Lord Jesus. God, I agree with the prayer of my sister this morning that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation. God, make it white hot this morning, Lord. Make us happy and satisfied in you, Lord Jesus, today. We are your bride. We are your people. We are your church that's called by your name. And we ask you to help us today. Pour out your grace and pour out your mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alright, I want to start our time this morning by reading our passage. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 28. We're going to read through chapter 3, verse 3. So if you have your Bibles, I want everybody's eyes on these words. Okay, we say this a lot, I'll say it again. This is by far the most important thing that you're going to hear in the next hour, because these are the words of God, not the words of man. This is truth without error. Another way to say that, this is hot breath from the Holy One as He personally addresses us this morning in His Word. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is the Word of God. This is God's Word to His church this morning. And so we want to trust Him. All across this room, we come together and we gather together as the people of God. And all different kinds of needs are before us. All different kinds of experience has been, have been experienced this week. But we want to trust God that He can take this passage of Scripture and break it like bread and feed us at His table this morning. And that He can give every soul in this room what, what we need. We want to trust Him that He's going to do that week in and week out as we gather. So I want to ask you to pray that as we're walking through this passage. Lord Jesus, speak to me. Lord Jesus, speak in power to my neighbor this morning. Give us what we need. Give us what we need. I want to give us a reminder. You've heard this several times over. And me and Ryan will give you this several times more. That the reason that this letter, 1 John, has been written can be found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Okay, I'll read it to you. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, so I want you to think back to last week. We know that these words are being written to a group of Christians who are in danger of being deceived by false teachers. Okay? So John picks up the pen inspired by the Holy Spirit and he writes out this letter. And what his aim is with this letter is he wants this group of Christians to know that they have the real gospel. That they have been brought into a real relationship with the Lord Jesus. He wants those who believe to know they have the real thing. Okay, In the midst of these false teachers, in the midst of these false gospels, he tells them, and Ryan, Ryan unpacked this last week, you don't need anything new. You don't need any new insights, any mystical insights from any super anointed ones. You have it all. You have the real gospel. You have been brought in to a relationship with the living God. You presently possess eternal life. You have it. You have the real gospel. You don't need anything new. You need that old message. And so he commands them to abide in what they have heard from the very beginning. The same message that saves them is going to sustain them to the very end. And so Ryan unpacked that last week. And in our text, he just takes that idea of continuing on and what we have already received. And he just runs with it even further. And so the title of, of our message today is to abide in Christ. And we're going to press into that this morning. In fact, there's two commandments in our passage. The first is to abide in Jesus. And then the second commandment in our passage is a commandment to see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. The Father has given us. We have two commands. One is to abide in Christ and one is to consider this love of the Father. Okay? And, it, and if you ever wonder this, as you study Scripture, as you di dive into a passage of Scripture, or as you hear Scripture talk, 
The commandments in a passage automatically tell you what the application of the passage is supposed to be, right? So you already know, if we have commandments in this passage, you already know what God intends you to do with this passage today. What, what does He intend you to do? He intends you to obey this. He intends us to walk out of this room today and abide in Christ and give attention to the love of God. And so we're going to press into these commandments. And by the time we're done today, my aim is to show you how closely related these two commandments are of abiding in Christ and seeing or beholding or giving attention to the love of the Father. Alright, this is where we're headed. Let's start with the commandment this morning to abide in Christ. I want you to try to visualize that you're there with the recipients of this letter, the first the first recipients, and you have Antichrist, and they're abounding. People are dropping like flies, walking away from the real Jesus and the true gospel, and they're going after counterfeit Christ and myths and false gospels. And you have this commandment in, in, in the midst of these apostates who seem to be Christians, but they're really not. You have this commandment to abide in Christ, to abide in Him. And we've heard this many times over. If you've been around the church of Jesus, if, you, if you've been around the things of God, this is, this is common language, okay? That we hear this referenced often, that we are to abide in Christ. But I don't think it's commonly understood, okay? This commandment can get mystical very fast. And I want us to try to ground this commandment in God's Word. What exactly are we supposed to be doing when we are commanded by God the Holy Spirit to abide in Christ. And so as we walk through this and explain it and unpack it, I want you to begin to ask yourself this question, am I doing that? As we understand what it is, you're asking, am I doing that? Am I abiding in Christ as Scripture defines it this morning? So here we go. The word abide, the word abide comes from the Greek word meno, and that word means to remain. So we're already tremendously helped if we, just if we just say it like that. That the commandment is to remain in Christ. So this is a commandment not just to believe the gospel when you're 15. To believe the gospel when you're 20 or 25 or however old you are this morning. It's not to receive the gospel one time in your life and you're done forever. It is a commandment to remain in Jesus. To continue to be a Christian. To continue to be a Christian. Me and Ryan were talking about this a week ago. And we were, we, it's provocative to say this, but I want to ask you this. What is your plan in life to die a Christian? To die in Christ? To not die a heretic and to not die a false convert? What's your plan? And the commandment that slipped right in there is the plan ought to be that you remain in Jesus. That you abide in Jesus. Christ. So this is the idea of this ongoing relationship with Christ, not just a one-time thing. Okay, A persevering, enduring, continuing on relationship with Jesus. That's what the word means, to abide, to remain, to continue. According to Jesus, this is a mark of a true believer. True believers abide. So like so many other things in the letter of 1 John, these are tests. These are tests that God has graciously given us to examine our profession to be a Christian, to see if, in fact, we are really a Christian. And so this test this morning comes at us, are you abiding? Are you abiding? 
If you have really believed the gospel, if you are genuinely converted, you will continue to believe the gospel. You will remain until the very end. You will abide. So this is a test, a gospel test. There's a couple of illustrations of what it means to abide in Christ in Scripture. And the most common, by far, is found in John 15, where Jesus compares this abiding with Christ with a relationship of a branch and a vine. In fact, he compares it to a living, it's like a living branch staying connected to its vine. So I want you to hear this. First four verses of John 15, Jesus says this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So you have this simple illustration that this commandment doesn't have to be mystical. It is about a branch staying connected to a vine. A living branch drawing life from and staying connected to a vine. Not a dead branch that falls off that vine because it's not connected. That's the illustration. Okay, simple enough, right? Now, but here's the hard part. Here, here's where it's not so much on the surface because then we turn the corner and we say, but how do we do that? How do I hang on to Jesus like a branch is hanging on to a vine? And that's what I want us to press. I want this to be so clear to you this morning. What does it mean to abide? How do you do it? How do you do it? And I've... Praise the living God that we don't have to chunk up different, you know, well, so-and-so says this and so-and-so has this insight. God's word sheds light on what it means to abide in Christ. And I think the most helpful verse for me, you test it for yourself, the most helpful verse was found in John chapter 6. And in this chapter, Jesus gives a discourse, and many people call this the bread of life discourse, where Jesus announces himself I am the bread of life. And in the midst of this chapter, we find verse 56, and it says this. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. And you say, dude, I thought you were trying to make it clear. Like... Fail. Strike one, two, and three. Like, you're trying to make it clear, and that's as clear as mud. Eat the flesh of Jesus and drink His blood. What are you talking about? But I want you to see if we can understand what He's saying there. He said, if you do that, you abide in me, and I in you. So I want us to spend some time talking about this. And the first thing I want to tell you, 100%, take it to the bank. There is nothing weird that Jesus is teaching here. He's not teaching anything weird, okay? When he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He is not, never, he is not talking about physically eating and physically drinking his body and his blood. He is not. In fact, it's against Jewish law, God's law in the Old Testament, 
to even think about eating blood. Okay? He is not turning to his disciples and saying, break God's law and eat my blood. This is no way is he saying anything close to being weird in this passage. So what is he doing? What is he doing? These are metaphors. Brothers and sisters, these are beautiful metaphors of biblical faith. And you find this so often in John's gospel. What is faith like? What does it mean to really believe in Jesus? And one of the things that faith is like is like eating a piece of bread and drawing nourishment and drawing life. It's like drinking something that satisfies your soul. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. So this is a metaphor of biblical faith. Biblical faith. This is exactly what Jesus says earlier in the chapter. Listen to John 6, 35. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now you would think, if we were talking about something physical, you would think that the one who ate would never hunger, and the one who drank would never thirst. But he says, no, no, the one who comes to me and believes is the one who will never hunger and never thirst. These are metaphors of coming to Christ and believing Him and trusting Him. Okay? This is what it means to eat the bread of life. You cannot eat it with physical hands, shoving bread in your physical mouth. You have to eat the bread of life spiritually by faith. You feast on Jesus like bread by coming to Him and believing in Him. And He says, every person that does that abides in Him. Abides in Him. Therefore... Abiding in Jesus, continuing in Jesus, is nothing more than continuing to believe Him. Continuing to trust Christ. That's the commandment to every person in this room this morning. That you don't just believe Him one time and live however you want to live for the rest of your life. You are drawn into this continual dependent relationship with Jesus. Continual faith. Continual Trust. This is what it means to abide in Christ. That's how you stay connected to the vine. That's how you, the branch, stay connected to the vine. You don't reach out and grab with your hands like vice grips and say, Jesus, never let me go. You, you grab on and you stay connected by believing, by believing him, in Him, not by trying real hard, not by spiritual push-ups, but by faith, by trusting Him. This is what it means to abide. And I want to just put a sharper focus on that. More specifically than you continuing to trust in Jesus, I want you to see how cross-centered that that verse in John 6 was. If we do that, then we abide. And what he told us to do is he told us to feast, to feed off of his flesh and off of his blood. This is not, when we say continue to believe in Jesus... We don't mean continue to believe vague, general facts about Jesus. You need to automatically think, cross, Son of God slaughtered on my behalf, continuing to trust in what He's done for me on His cross, feasting off of His flesh and off of His blood. And what this tells us is that Jesus performed 
a glorious work on His cross. We call it substitution. On His cross, Jesus, the God-man, takes all of our sins, all of our rebellions, and they are cast upon Him, imputed to Him, and God the Father begins to treat God the Son as though He were personally guilty of our sins, of our rebellions. This is the work of the cross, this glorious work where Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. And as glorious as it is, as matchless as that message is, the only thing that connects that message to your life is faith. The only thing that connects that to you is faith. The only way that becomes good news for you is that you believe is that you trust Him. That's what connects you to the work of Christ, is faith. That's what joins you to the vine, the living vine, is biblical faith. And I want you to, know how, I want you to see how cross-centered that is. So when you hear this commandment this morning that you must continue on with Jesus, I want you to have glorious thoughts of Christ crucified in your place. This cross-centered relationship with Jesus, feeding off the finished work of Christ. One writer called it a faith feast, a faith feast in the atonement of the Son of God. Does that describe your normal week in this world? What are you doing, Jake? Oh, I'm feeding off, off the Son of God slaughtered on my behalf. Do you see that? Do you see how sharp that is? This cross-centered focus. This is what it means to abide in Christ. Okay? To continue to feast off of His finished work on the cross. And so here's what it doesn't mean. To continue to believe in Jesus in a cultural sense. That mama believed in Jesus. Grandma believed in Jesus. Seven generations back believed in Jesus. And I got some kids now. So I probably need to be in church and believe in Jesus. That's not the idea of abiding. Of continuing on. Of this cultural faith. General vague faith in Jesus. Neither... Neither is abiding in Jesus about continuing to believe facts about Jesus. As good as that is. Be warned by this this morning. Abiding in Christ is not you continuing to believe that Jesus is God and Jesus is man and that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And that you believe those as facts and receive them as truths in your life. Praise God that you do that. That has to happen. But there's something more specific at play than abiding in Jesus. This is personal trust in the living God. This, he didn't say abide in the idea. Okay? And you should. You should abide in truths. But behind those truths is a real, living, breathing Christ. He is a living person that we are to lay a hold of by faith. By faith. Personal trust in the crucified God, man. Listen to how... 1 John chapter 2 says it. 1 John chapter 2 verse 24 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So you catch that? That same message that you heard from the beginning, you continue to lay a hold of it by faith. And what's the message? What's the message that they heard from the beginning? That Christ died for your sins, that He bore them in His body on the tree, 
that they put him in the tomb and he was dead, dead, dead. They buried him. He fully paid the penalty for your sins. And then what happened? Three days later, Christ triumphantly and victoriously is raised from the dead. That's the message they heard, right? And the commandment is to stick with that one. Don't alter it. Don't go after something new. Stick with what you've had from the very beginning. This is what it means to abide in Christ. And so now let's turn the corner and let's get personal for, for, for just a moment. If that's what it means, how is that going for you? How is this playing out in your everyday life? Are you abiding in Christ? And somebody might say, yeah. Brother, yeah, I'm continuing to believe the gospel. And I just want to give you a warning. If what you mean by that is you have A, B, C, D, E, and F... The things that you affirm about Jesus, like a doctrinal statement, I believe Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is man. I believe that he's sinless. I believe that he died as a substitute on his cross. And you affirm facts about Jesus. I just want to warn you this morning about a cold intellectualism. That is not what he has in mind with abiding in Christ. I am genuinely thankful for sound doctrine. But it has to do something in your heart. Jesus promised that if you leave your first love, that He will spew you out of His mouth. That He will remove the lampstand from its place. Okay, This is the command. It has to go further than the intellect. It's supposed to be piercing the affections. That you believe. That you continue to trust in Christ. So ask yourself this question. Everybody in the room, in the last month of your life, you just do an inventory with everything that we, we know and what we just defined from God's Word. In the last month of your life, could your relationship with Jesus and His Gospel be compared to somebody sitting at the table and feasting at a banquet feast? Is that what your relationship with Jesus has been like this week? That you're feeding on His flesh, that you're drinking His blood. You see how much deeper that is than just affirming certain truths about it? That you are feasting on Christ. That you are drawing down real spiritual life from Jesus. Is this the description of your life in the past month? And His commandment to us is to abide in me. Feed on my flesh. Drink my blood. That ought to draw us into this vivid picture of this daily cross-centered coming to Christ. Trust in Christ, receiving everything that He purchased for us on His cross. Brothers and sisters, don't settle for anything less than this abiding. Than this abiding. And the biggest warning that I want to throw out to you this morning is this cold intellectualism that doesn't ignite the heart, that doesn't stir passion and love and affection for the Lord Jesus. The Bible says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. That's what it looks like when we begin to sink our teeth into the finished work of Christ. It looks like happiness and joy and satisfaction that we are satisfied in our all-sufficient Christ. That we worship Him. That we worship Him. Nothing less than feeding off the flesh of the Son of God by faith. This is the commandment. Abide in Him. So, this is the commandment that we have continued to trust in Jesus in this cross-centered way. 
And then we bump into these two words in our passage. So that. Do this. So that. And that so that is a purpose statement. Do this abiding because this is about to happen. Okay? And what's the purpose statement? The so that. This is why every person should obey the commandment to abide in Jesus. Because He is going to appear. He is going to appear. You see that in verse 28. So the Bible teaches that the Christ that we are abiding in, that we are constantly clinging to, there's coming a moment in history where He is going to suddenly appear. Okay? Not in a weird, mystical way. In a real, physical body, Jesus will be seen. He is going to appear and the commandment is to abide in Him because He's going to return. Because He's going to return. We'll come back to that thought. I want you to put that on the back burner for just a moment. The return of Christ. And I want to draw us back into the context of John, 1 John chapter 2. We know what's going down in this chapter. That there are antichrists that are telling lies about Jesus. They are attacking His nature. They are attacking His nature. They are telling lies about Him. And, and, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to separate the human Jesus, that carpenter from Nazareth, from this divine Christ and this mystical thing. They're trying to separate these two things. Look at what it says in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? You see that? Denies that the human Jesus is the divine Christ. And so I've, we, we've referenced this many times. That there was some attempt to affirm, yeah, there was this man named Jesus. But they were saying really weird stuff about him. Like the divine came upon him at his baptism and left him before he died on the cross. Because God can never die on the cross. And so they separate the human nature of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. And the real Christ of Scripture is the God-man. Is the God-man. I want us to say that. There's no way you should ever be tired of hearing it. But this is, this is the glorious two natures, one Christ. He is the God-man. Fully God and fully man. Full deity and full humanity. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to strip Him of this glory. But no, He's not. No, He's not really full deity and that little baby in the manger. No, He's not really full deity being hammered to the cross. No, He's not. No, He's not. So they're attacking His incarnation and His crucifixion. And I just want you to think about how offensive that is to God. How offensive that is to God. There is, there is never been any mercy unleashed, any grace unleashed on planet earth. Like the grace that was unleashed when the sinless, perfect Son of God leaves glory with the Father. Leaves a face-to-face -face relationship with God the Father. Incarnates Himself in a real human body. That is humble enough that the cre Creator of the ends of the earth has now taken on the nature of His creatures. And then what happens? You know the story. He lives in this world. Subjects, all, subjects Himself to His rebellious Creatures lives a sinless life, and then they hammer him on the cross. They murder the Son of God on the cross. Never mercy revealed 
on planet earth like that. But because why? Because the whole reason for why he's here is he's on a rescue mission to save his enemies. Never mercy like this in all of history. And yet they take this glorious Christ, the only one who could ever save for sin, the only one who could ever pay the atoning price before God, and they begin to strip him of his glory. He's not really God. He's not really man. He's something different than the God-man. Imagine how offensive that is to God the Father who sent Him and the Lord Jesus who came and was hammered to the cross. It's offensive. And this still happens all over the world. All over the world. There is attempts, even today, all over this world to strip Him of His glory. Of His glory. Muslims and Jews together... They cannot stomach the thought of God the Father having the Son. They can't stomach that thought and they begin to mock it. And what are they doing when they mock it? Stripping Christ of His glory. Stripping Him of His glory. Stripping Him of the glory of of the two natures in one Christ. And then the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they reject Jesus' deity outright. And what do they do when they do that? He's just a man or exalted angel that was hammered to the cross. And they strip him of his exalted glory. And this is the world filled with false versions of Jesus, counterfeit Christ. Ryan called it a world full of antichrist last week. And I want you, I want you to see the very next pivot in this letter of 1 John. You have these false Jesuses that are spreading all over the earth. And in the midst of these counterfeit Christ, the real Christ is about to appear. He's about to make a showing in the midst of these distortions of who He is. And so the Bible teaches that the real Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be in power and glory. In power and glory. I want to read you a few verses to highlight that this morning. He is going to appear in power and and glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet blast of God. Power and glory. Listen to Matthew 24 verse 25. Jesus says, "See, I have told you beforehand, So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I want to just encourage you what that means. That means that he's coming publicly. He's not coming to some inner room or some secret place out in the wilderness where a few people see Him and they say, Come here, Jesus has come back. Come here, come see Him. Jesus says, Don't believe that. Don't go out to Him. Because when I come, it's going to be like lightning flashing up the entire sky, east to the west. He's coming in power and glory. He's not coming to make a private showing or a secret appearance. Every single person on planet earth will know that he has arrived. Will know that he has arrived. He's not coming in secret. He's coming to rip the sky wide open. 
Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He's coming in power and glory. You won't have to remind yourself to fear Him, to be amazed by Him, or to, or to stand ashamed in His presence. It will be a reflex. It will be a gut response. If you're standing in the middle of a lightning storm in the middle of an open field, and lightning cracks the ground four feet away from you, and thunder begins to shake the core of your being, you don't say to yourself, Self, lose your breath right now. Feel all of your weight in the soles of your feet. It's a reflex. That's how Jesus is coming. And every person in all of God's creation is going to see Him. He's coming in power. Coming in power. And verse 28 tells us that when He comes, all of humanity is going to be presented in two groups before Him. Two groups before Him. Those who stand before Him with confidence... And those who stand ashamed before, before Jesus Christ. Two groups and only two groups. All of humanity gathered into these two. And what determines which group you fall into is that commandment that we've already unpacked. Abide in me. Abide in Him. Abide in Jesus. Why? So that when He appears, you can stand in the group that is confident in His presence. You see how much weight is attached to that? That commandment that you continue to cling to the finished work of Christ so that when He appears, you're not standing in that group of unbelieving humanity that is ashamed before Him. You must continue. You must persevere in faith. You must continue to the very end trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. Only those who continue to trust are safe in the final day. And only these are true believers. I had a conversation not even two weeks ago about someone who I know very well that, that is a militant atheist, that, that renounces Christ, hates the things of God. And I had someone else that I know very well, and we were talking about this individual, of how, you know, how sad it is that so-and-so is, is like this. And we were talking about that individual's funeral and, 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 and what happens so often in our culture is someone who denies the gospel preached into heaven in a funeral. Some preacher slipped a $100 bill and praised the Lord that God is so gracious, so merciful, and we thank the Lord for His kind, merciful nature. And I just shared a verse of Scripture that Jesus said, if you deny me before men... He promised that He would deny you before the Father who is in heaven. There is no such thing of someone who denies the gospel of Jesus and goes to heaven. And you know what that person said to me? But he prayed to receive Christ when he was 17. And he went to church in his 20s and he memorized Bible verses. And then the next 30 years of his life, he renounced the faith and he walked away from the things of God. And the version of biblical security that's held out in our culture is that he's fine because that little thing happened when he was 18 or when he was 25. What does Jesus say? He says, abide in me. 
that little thing that happened when you were 18 or 25, if it's genuine, it will continue until you're 65 and they put you in the ground. If it's genuine, if you have genuinely believed the gospel, if you have genuine saving faith from God, it will continue to the very end. And only those are saved. Only those who abide stand before Christ and are confident in the final day. Do you see the weight that's attached to that? Of how important it is for us to walk out with sober thoughts about continuing to cling to the gospel today. So I want you to imagine that group of humanity, that, that group that stands ashamed before Jesus, that group of humanity that rejected Christ. And what, whether they flat out rejected Jesus, where they heard the gospel and they said, get out of here with that. Or whether they rejected Christ from some, for some counterfeit version of Jesus. And turn to this false Christ that can't save, like the book of Galatians. Or remember earlier in John, in 1 John chapter 2. Or they rejected Christ because they were in love with the things of the world. And they committed adultery on God and turned their back on Jesus and fell in love with the things of this world more than Jesus. Whatever the reason that they rejected Christ, they rejected Him. And I want you to imagine them standing there at His appearing. That glorious moment that we just read about. When He comes in power and they stand before Him. And I want you to picture them. All of a sudden, they are face to face with Jesus Christ, the God-man. That real Christ of Scripture. Not the distorted one, but the real one. The one filled with power. The creator of the ends of the earth. The one that conquered death. In His resurrection. The one that reigns as King even now over all that He has made. And they are now standing before the glorified, resurrected, reigning, now returned God-man. And I want you to imagine them standing there. And I want you to imagine them in that moment. These thoughts flooding their mind. And the best words that I could possibly think to grab a hold of this for me to understand it. Is the words, oh my. I want you to imagine that. They're standing before the Lord Jesus and all of a sudden the thoughts come, oh my. He really isn't the History Channel Jesus. History Channel one hour special left this part out. His eyes are a flame of fire. His voice is like the sound of many waters. And the sky itself is beginning to peel back away from this exalted Christ. He's really not the History Channel Jesus. I want you to imagine that. That deception and that rebellion and that distortion being exposed in that moment. He's really not the, the Islamic Isa. He's really not the false Christ of Mormonism. He's the real Jesus. The God-man. It's just like those Christians said. He's fully God and He's fully man. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And now He has arrived and He's here. It's just like they said. Standing before the real Christ in His glorious presence. Oh my. I thought He was boring my whole life. Oh my. There's not an ounce of boring in Him. Angels are hitting their face in worship. I want you to imagine that. The Bible says that all unbelieving humanity will stand before Him and will see Him. And in that moment, 
that will all be exposed. And the Bible teaches that unbelieving humanity is going to be ashamed before him. And literally that word is in the passive, which means they are going to be put to shame. Jesus Christ is going to shame them when he returns. All who reject him, he is going to shame them. Listen to how the Bible describes this. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. So what if that's you this morning? What would it look like for you to be ashamed of Jesus and His words? It looked like you're never talking about Him. You're hiding in the corner all the time. Your faith in Christ is supposed to be your most valued possession. We sing this song a lot of grace. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And the unbelieving world hears that as a song like, Hallelujah, all I have is a worn out $1 bill. Right? Who is Christ? And we're saying, no, no, no. Hallelujah. I have the unsearchable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. I possess Him. He is mine. I am the richest of men because I have Him. What would it look like for you to be ashamed of Jesus? And everyone who is, is going to be ashamed at His coming. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus is coming back to do two things. He's coming back to destroy and He's coming back to save. Those two groups receive two different things from Christ. Listen to this verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back and He will inflict vengeance on all who rejected Him, on all who did not obey His gospel. And then the verse of Scripture that I think captures the sheer terror of this moment where this group stands before Jesus is found in Revelation chapter 6. And I want to read it to you. Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Is that not a terrifying picture into that moment? That there will be massive amounts of unbelieving humanity that are screaming out for rocks to smash their brains out of their head. They would prefer that than to see the Lord Jesus and His wrath being revealed. He's coming back 
And this is the certain appointment of everyone who is not abiding in Jesus. They will be put to shame in His presence. They will be put to shame in His presence. Let those words be a reminder to every person in the room. That right now in this moment, you have an opportunity of grace to respond to His gospel. He has offered you salvation from sin. Eternal salvation from sin. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and what He has done for you in this glorious work on the cross, you can be saved from wrath forever. Forever. But the warning is this. The moment that He appears, you have no more chances to respond to His gospel. It is done. It is done. The moment He appears, everyone who has rejected His gospel is put to shame. So I want to remind anybody here, if you have been lingering over the things of Jesus, if you have been struck by the gospel, by the preaching of God's word, or God the Holy Spirit has come upon you in some way with conviction of sin, alarming you that you might not be a Christian, I want to remind you that every single moment you continue in your unbelief, or maybe you're just in a place where I'm not sure yet, I'm not sure yet, I want to remind you that every moment you continue in that place, you are still rejecting Him. You're still rejecting Him. For you to be indecisive about Jesus is for you to completely reject Him. Completely reject Christ. We're the church of the living God. Almost everybody in this room I know, almost, and almost everybody in this room that I know, I know you're not a part of that group. I am confident that you have inherited eternal life. Not every person in here, but a lot of people in here are not in that group. What group are we in? The Bible says that the other group is described as having confidence before Jesus. And I want to just stop and remind you, when He's revealed in power, skies rolling back from Christ, and we are sinful. We are a sinful people. And yet that verse has told us that we, a sinful people, can stand with confidence before this sinless, exalted, reigning Christ. What mercy is just wrapped up in that word? In those words, that a sinful people can stand before Him in confidence. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 calls this confidence for the day of judgment. So this is not a pop your collar, you know, and, and thinking you're better than anybody else in this world. The confidence is not rooted in we are better than anybody. The confidence is rooted in we know that our penalty has been borne full strength on the cross and there's no more condemnation left to be paid to us. Our Christ has borne it all. We said it like this before. It's like you burning wood down to ashes and you try to light it with a lighter over and over. There's nothing left to burn. There's nothing left to burn. Our penalty has been paid in full. There's no more wrath, no more justice to be paid for our sin. That's where our confidence comes from. 
that Jesus has borne our penalty in our place. The Bible promises that we who abide, we can expect this confidence before God. Expect this confidence before God, but it also promises that we can expect something now in the present. If we abide in Christ, if we continue in Him, we can expect something now. Take you back to John 15, verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we continue to trust in Jesus, we can expect, according to God's word, that we bear much fruit. Much fruit. Passage in 1 John, you know what it calls that fruit? In verse 29, it calls it practicing righteousness. You can expect that as you continue to believe and to trust Jesus and His gospel, you can expect righteousness, the fruit of righteousness to be borne out in your life. This is evidence that you have been truly born of God. This is a major thing in the letter of 1 John. That every Christian bears fruit. Every single Christian practices righteousness. Every single one. Why? These are the fruits of faith. This is the evidence of the new birth. Look how, how carefully verse 29 is, is worded. The one who practices righteousness has been born of God. That's how you know. Okay? It doesn't make you born of God. It just proves that that new birth has already happened in your life. And you know what the great heresy is today. I already talked to you about it a little bit. There it is. Heard it that time. Great heresy in our day. Believe the gospel. And this is exported mass quantity. And, and mega churches and, 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 and gospel uh, events where you want to receive the gospel, raise your hand. This happened to me. Somebody preached the gospel to me and said, hey, if you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand and pray this prayer. Salvation is by grace, not by works. Just pray this prayer and you'll be fine forever. And I remember in my sinfulness thinking, man, the grace of God is awesome. This cost me absolutely nothing. And I prayed that prayer and I thought I was a Christian. For five years I walked on this planet as a false convert. Because I believed a false version of the gospel. The Bible teaches us and 1 John screams at us. There is no such thing as a Christian that does not bear fruit and practice righteousness. No such thing. A fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. Okay, That's like a meat-eating vegetarian. They cannot go together. Okay? Oil and water. There's no such thing as that. And that's what this book is screaming at us. And that's what we, we, we've asked God from the very beginning to awaken as we preach through these passages of Scripture that He would wake any and all up to this. Wake us up to true conversion. Wake us up to true conversion. I am encouraged by this, though, that this, this heresy seems rampant in our culture. That, you know, I said the prayer and I'm fine. But I am encouraged by this, that, that this is not necessarily a new thing. 
He is having to warn first century Christians about the same problems. So the encouragement is this heresy is ancient. It takes on new forms and a little different presentation. But it is an ancient heresy that men of God, women of God, they've always had to come against. Even a man named Augustine. So this is the first century in 1 John. But even a man named Augustine in the second century, he's coming out against a, 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 coming against a group of false converts. And look at what he says. He says, You adore him in your head, but you blaspheme him in your body. You adore Jesus in your head, but you blaspheme him in your body. Sounds verbatim like the biblical phrase. They profess godliness, but they deny its power. They profess to know Christ, but the fruit of their life screams otherwise. That's the heresy. That's the heresy. And the Bible teaches that the new birth is always going to evidence itself in fruit or righteousness. Ryan is going to hammer this next week, Lord willing. So you're going to hear more of that. But just real quick, let me say this. Being born of God. This is the first time we come across this language in 1 John. This idea that we have been fathered by the Holy One. Born of God. So what's at play here with this language? This new birth, this born of God, this is a reference to God the Father. The so birthing is the sovereign work of parents, okay? not the work of children. And so this idea of being born of God is His sovereign work where He takes His own life and He imparts it in dead sinners. And when He does that, He raises us from spiritual death. And we are now new creations in Christ, born of God, born the second time, born again. We have the life of God now pulsing through our souls. We have been fathered by God. And just like children look like their parents, talk like their parents, and act like their parents, that same analogy carries over that we now share the nature of God, the one who is righteous has shared that nature with us and now we practice righteousness to a measure now and perfect in eternity. We have shared in the nature of God through this new birth. There are no exceptions to this rule. I want to give you a quote from a Puritan named William Gurnall. Listen to what he says. He says, Who among us has not learned by experience that it requires a different spirit than the world can give to follow Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying. Don't ever forget that these commandments that you're supposed to be obeying, this righteousness and this fruit that you're supposed to be producing is supernatural. It is a miracle that comes from a spirit that this world can't give. And then listen to how he finishes this. He says, Cowards never won heaven and then he's got this sharp phrase. Do not claim that you are begotten of God and that you have His royal blood running in your veins unless you can prove your lineage by His heroic and dwelling spirit that you would dare to be holy in spite of men and demons. So do you, do you feel the warning this morning? Do not profess to know Him, to be born of Him, Unless you can prove your lineage by the fruits 
that the indwelling Spirit of God is bearing in your life. That's the heresy of false conversion. So you have this idea of being born of God. That we, upon receiving the gospel, upon believing in Jesus, God fathers us. God makes us entirely new men and women. We are new creatures in Christ. So you have this idea of the new birth, and then he goes straight into this commandment. Straight into this commandment in John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. So this is a commandment for you to see something, for you to behold something, that something would linger in your mind, that something would grab your attention. You are commanded to see this, okay? Let this grab your attention this morning. That we should be called the children of God. This is a commandment that you would pause and think about the love of the Father that was lavished on you when you became a a child of God. Commanded to stop and think about it. In this ungodly, fast-paced world, you have got to see this. You have got to behold this. You have got to let this grip your soul. That the love of God has been lavished upon you. That you would be called a child of God. And by the time we're we're through, I want you to see how closely connected this command is to abiding in Christ. So I want, to, I want you to really ask yourself this morning, just like we did earlier, when is the last time that you were gripped by the love of God? That you were overtaken with glorious, beautiful thoughts that God has made me His son or His daughter by complete grace, by grace and grace alone. We sang it earlier. When's the last time that that overtook you? That you beheld it? That you lingered over it? Same warning applies. Not when you remembered it like a phone book fact. That you're remembering somebody's address. But when you're remembering it in a faith-filled way. And you can't even begin to, to describe the glory of the love of God. That has been lavished on you in Christ. That is what's in mind here. That this would overtake you. Overwhelm you. The word what kind of love the Father has given to us. That word what kind is used in Scripture to describe things from another realm. Things from another realm. This is the word that's used to describe Jesus in Matthew 8 verse 27. When the Lord Jesus Christ stands up out of a boat and He personally addresses a hurricane with His mouth and He rebukes it with the word and the wind and the waves die down. The disciples around him say this, same Greek word. What sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You see what they're doing? That man is not from this realm. People from this realm don't do that. What kind of man is that? That the wind and the waves would obey him. And that's the manner of the love of God. It is completely apart. Standing by itself. No rivals. It is love from a completely different realm. A completely different realm. 
the glorious adopting love of the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that this love of adoption was, was set upon us from the foundation of the world. From before the foundation of the world. We were predestined to adoption. And I want you to think about that. That automatically undercuts some things. What does it undercut? God didn't love you because you did good stuff. Right? Well, how do you know that? Because He loved you before you ever existed. He set His affections on you before Genesis 1 ever even happened. This is not attached to any merit, any worth in you. This is the sovereign plan of God that you, of all people on planet earth, would be called into the plan of the ages. That you, a sinner, a rebel against God, would be called a child of God by grace. And grace alone that you are predestined to this. This love that God has lavished on us. God loves every person in his creation. But not the same. Not in the same way. Every person in God's creation has not had the adopting love of the father lavished on them. And made them children of God. This is a special love of God that he has poured out on us by grace. It is love from another world. And it has nothing to do with your merit or with your word. It was planned before the foundation of the earth. And then Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 reminds us that this adoption, this love, becomes ours through responding to the gospel of Christ. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith. You became a son of God through believing the message of grace, the gospel of Jesus, through faith. Every single person who believes the gospel is brought immediately and forever into a parent-child relationship with the living God. And I just want that to hit you this morning. Let's just, let's just linger for a second of what we just said. That we have been brought by grace into a parent-child relationship with the living God. We, sinful we, enemies of God, rebels against God, unclean before God, and yet we're children of God. Children of God. So that's us, but what about Him? The Holy One. The Holy One. We are children of the Holy One. Isaiah chapter 6, even in this moment as I'm talking, we have a snapshot into the throne room of God that right now there are exalted created angels called cherubim that are worshiping the Lord with a voice so loud that the temple of God shakes in His presence as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You know these creatures have never partaken in rebellion against God. They've never tasted sin. They're sinless beings. These cherubim. And yet the Bible says that as they're worshiping, they are covering their faces from the Holy One. That His radiance and His glory and His majesty is so bright and so heavy that they shield themselves from God. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, God dwells in inapproachable light that his majesty and glory is of such brilliance 
of such radiance that no one could ever dream to approach Him. And yet every single Christian in this room bows the knee by faith and we open our mouth and we say, Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. You know how much mercy is wrapped up in that? That you call the Holy One your Father in heaven. Father in heaven. See what kind of love has been lavished on you that you would be called the children of God, sons and daughters of the living God. J.I. Packer calls this the highest blessing of the gospel. Listen to what he says. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. He's talking about the blessing of justification. That you are right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. Wrap your mind around this glorious gospel. Let it linger in your mind for a moment. Be reminded this morning that you have been justified by God the judge. Forever you have a righteous status before God the judge. And that same judge gets off the bench. And with arms wide open, he adopts you into his own family. And you know that judge now as your father in heaven. Anybody got any better news than that? In all of God's creation. In all of God's creation. This is the glorious love of God. Lavished on us. Lavished on us. It's not just a title. It says and so we are. We're named the children of God and so we are. We're called the children of God. And we really are. We really have shared in His family. And we share His nature as our Father. And not only that. God placed His Holy Spirit in us that every Christian would not only remember this as a fact, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God, but that you would experience it as a reality. Listen to this, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You see that? We're, right, we're way past remembering facts. We're in the throne room of God. We're drawing near to the Holy One. And the Holy Spirit is crying out in us. Abba, Father, we know the God that dwells in inapproachable light like a small child calls out to their daddy. By grace, this has been lavished on us. This is the glorious, amazing love of God from another realm. From another realm. Verse 1 closes... By reminding us that though we are part of God's family, we have this exalted status that we don't go around in this world beating our chest. That we're the holy ones. We're the children of God bowed down to us. In fact, we are to expect, even though we have this exalted status and children of God, we are to expect to be misunderstood and, 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 and hated and rejected as long as we live in this world. Listen to John chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you be reminded of that? There's a strand, strand of Christian teaching that floats through the body of Christ. And it's this dominion now, kingdom now. And we get things now. 
But they have these silly, dumb ideas that we're about to take over the world and everybody's going to bow down to us because we're the people of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. We have something now, but we don't have everything now. We're waiting for some things in a not yet way. We will be rejected and misunderstood by this world until the very end. Until the very end. Verse 2. So you have this commandment. And you're lingering over the love of God poured out on you. How could you possibly be a child of God when you sinned against this God from the moment you were born? It's love and mercy poured out on you. And just when you think it couldn't get any better, He keeps climbing and keeps climbing and the glory keeps coming at us of the glorious love of God. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, and we shall see Him as He is. First reminder, we're talking about the appearing of Christ and the end of all things. Some people think they got it all figured out. They got prophecy charts as big as a phone book. You ask them about who every prophetic figure is in Scripture, and they got a conspiracy theory a mile long for every single one. And the Bible says we don't know everything. We don't know everything that's going to happen to us. That's a call for humility, right? But don't take that too far. Don't take that too far of like, we don't, we don't know nothing, yet we do. We know two things for certain, absolute certainty, that when Jesus comes, we're going to see Him, and we are going to be like Him. We are going to see the Lord Jesus, and we are going to be made like the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is glorious news this morning that you with your eyes are going to see Christ you're going to see the real Jesus the one whom your soul loves the one that created every human being you're going to see him face to face face to face you will behold him and the Bible promises in that moment when he returns and we see him that we will see him as he is we're not going to see Jesus as He was in His earthly ministry. We're going to see Jesus as He is right now in power and glory. So we're not going to see Jesus like the apostles saw Jesus as they're walking along the roads of Galilee. We're, go we're going to see Jesus more like the apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 where he sees this glorious revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ when His glory is pulled back and revealed. We're going to see Him like that as He is. As He is. Glorified, resurrected humanity. We're going to see Jesus as He is. And our text says that this face-to-face -face exchange with Christ is going to be so powerful that in a moment you are going to be transformed into His likeness. He doesn't even reach out a hand or we have no light in God's word that he even says anything. All we are told is as soon as our eyes, he is so glorious that as soon as our eyes are laid upon him in that moment, we are transformed. We see him and we are made like him, just the sight of him. We're made like him. We're not going to share in his deity. Nobody in this room is going to be worshipped. But you will be made like Christ. Matthew chapter 13. 
Verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Go look at the sun for just a second today and say, oh, there's Nick Stafford. Oh, there's Shannon Poole. They're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of the father. That's the glory that's about to be revealed to us. Shining like the sun. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject even all things to Himself. What? Our bodies are going to be made like His body? His glorious body? What? This is glory revealed at His coming. In his book, The Weight of Glory, a man named C.S. Lewis began to meditate on our final state, the language that we're talking about here. And he tells us that there's no such thing as an ordinary Christian. We think in weird terms, comparing ourselves to one another all the time. And he gives an example. He says, you take the most uninteresting Christian that you could possibly imagine. Which, who would want to be that person? But this is an example. And he said, you set them before us. And you put them in that final state. And they're made like Christ. He says, in that moment, they would be creatures so glorious that every single one of us would be strongly tempted to worship them. Why? Because they're going to shine like the sun. Like those angels that prophets see. And they begin to fall down and worship. And they say, no, worship God. That's going to be similar to us. We're going to shine like the sun. And we are going to have a glorified body. Like the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the Lord Jesus Christ. Unthinkable mercy is going to be poured out on every single one of you. Every single one of you who are in Christ. There's a story from church history about a group of pagans on an island that came to Christ. And the story goes is as the scriptures are being translated into their language, the scribe makes his way to 1 John chapter 3 and that phrase in verse 2, we shall be like him. And the story goes that that scribe Never heard anything like this. He slams his pen down. And he says, no. It is too much. We shall write. We shall kiss his feet. He couldn't even begin to wrap his mind around. When the king comes, we're going to be made like the king. This is the glory that is to be revealed to us. Shining like the sun in the kingdom of our father. And I just want to ask you this. Can you imagine anything more glorious, more wonderful than that instantaneously in a moment you are made like Jesus? That you are made like Christ. This is the love that's been lavished on us. Consider it this morning. Behold it. Give attention to the love of God. Morally. We're going to be without sin forever. Our sin nature is going to be eradicated and destroyed. Physically, 
We are going to be without weakness. Emotionally, we will be without coldness forever. Forever. Can you imagine that? My favorite thing to think about in eternity is that one day we are going to, to see the Lord Jesus and worship Him for the first time without any sin. Nothing in my mind distorting His nature and who He is and nothing in my heart cold to who He is. White hot worship and truth. Forever we're going to worship Him in this way. Made like Him forever. No more pain, no more tears, no more sadness. Face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord Jesus for millions of ages. Satisfied in Christ. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. I want you to see how similar that is. For you to really give attention to the love of God. Almost synonymous with the phrase, abide in Him. This cross-centered these cross-centered thoughts of what God has done for you and the blessings that flow to you from this cross and this resolve in you to continue to trust, to continue to believe in Him. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are going to see Jesus. You are going to be made like Jesus. And then you're going to be with Jesus forever. i got one more thing to share with you this morning. We have these... Glorious thoughts of eternity in the future. We have this indescribable hope that's laid up for us that's going to be revealed on the last day. And here's the question. But what does that have to do with my walk with God tomorrow? Like, Jesus, unless Jesus comes back tomorrow, how does that affect my walk with God in the present? And you know how the passage answers that question? Look at verse 3. It says, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. First thing it does, several things it does, but the first thing it does is it demolishes the southern proverb, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. You ever heard that? It says the exact opposite. It says the exact opposite of that. That the one who is heavenly minded, the one who has their hope fixed on everything that we just talked about. So let's put some meat on that. What would that look like? That your hope is set on these things. That you thus hope in Him. It looks like a person walking around in this world constantly thinking this. I'm going to be like Him. I'm going to see Him. I'm going to be with Christ. He's going to return. The person who thinks like that the Bible says it hits their everyday life in the form of purifying themselves. Purifying themselves. I'll give you another tip of the last things. This is how you know when you begin to step into prophecy in the end times. This is how you know that you're digesting these things rightly. Not that you got timetables and prophecy charts and scenarios and names. But when... The return of Christ in the last things begins to hit your soul in such a way that you begin to live in this world in light of His return. That's when you know you're receiving it rightly. When the return of Jesus is waking you up Monday through Friday to fight sin and to make yourself ready to see your God. So the call to everyone who thinks like that, I'm going to see Him. 
I'm going to be like Him. I'm going to see Him and I'm going to be like Him. Is that you would live this week, this month, in this world in a way that makes sense the moment you lay eyes on Him. That you would live now in a way that makes sense in eternity. This is why Jonathan Edwards prayed this famous prayer. He says, Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Not too heavenly minded and no earthly good. Jonathan Edwards said the exact opposite. I want to feel the weight of it all the time. I want to feel the weight of eternity, the weight of the return of Christ, the weight of the glory to come. Stamp it on my eyeballs. Stamp it on my eyeballs. I want us to close with this passage from 2 Peter. And it finishes the exact same way. In light of the coming of the Lord Jesus, we are to aggressively be fighting sin and making ourselves ready to see the Lord. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll close with verse 10 and 11. It says, since, uh, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people... Ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. And I say amen to that passage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would make it effective in our life. We do confess, Lord, that unless you make your word effective, God, it will produce no fruit, Lord. Your words are spirit and life, and the flesh is no profit at all. Lord, come upon us, God. Help us to feel these truths in our soul. And God, I pray the prayer of my sister again, Lord. Use these words this morning to restore to us the joy of our salvation. Exalt your work in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.